All right, thank you for that musical team. Thank you for your singing this morning. Let's turn to Romans chapter six. Well, corporate singing is an interesting thing. It's not something that the church came up with or that the Jews before them came up with. It was something that God designed for his people to do. And for the years I grew up in church, prior to being a Christian, the singing was just something I did uh, because that's what, what time it was. It was time to sing. And when you're in a family that you had to sing because they wouldn't let you just stand there, uh, you sang and you kind of learned to go along with the hymns and such. But when I became a Christian, the public singing became something that was very important to me because it was one way in which I would fight through uh, various times of my life and struggles. Those lyrics are designed by people who were walking through certain things and then use the scripture, the spirit of God to create these songs in which they were blessed in the lyrics as they were singing. Maybe I'll then fight that through. You really got to view it that way. And the way you do that is you really think about what you're singing. Might not even be your favorite song or one you're all that familiar with, but you're not concentrating on that as much as you are on what you're singing to God. And it doesn't take long that you are, like Colossians 3, from your heart making melody to the Lord, you see. You become a congregation of singers, which we are, and I appreciate that. Romans chapter 6 is where we are now, and this morning we're going to look specifically verses 5 through 14. We're going to finish those verses up and be ready to finish the chapter next week in verses 15 through 23. I won't do much review. If you have missed these services, these sermons, you need to just go back and listen to some if you would like, but otherwise we're just going to kind of dive in. Other than me saying this. You'll recall that important progression in Paul's letter to the Roman church. The first five chapters now primarily have reference to justification. Answering the question, how can a sinner be right with God? Answer, through faith in Jesus, one is declared righteous, meaning you're forgiven of your sins and you're given all the righteousness you need. That's justification. One time, Act of God, when a sinner trusts in Christ, one time, once for all, the only justification you need it is, is in that moment, it is not a process, there's nothing more you do, you trust Christ and you're forgiven and you have the righteousness of Christ himself, that's justification. But then in chapter 6, and primarily chapter 6 through about 8 and a half, He's dealing with this important doctrine of sanctification, and that word simply means holiness. Holiness in our lives is a process. In contrast to justification, it isn't something that just happens once, and it's not entirely of God. The power comes from Him. The ability comes from Him. The desire comes from Him, but really it is something that we by faith now and by the power of the Spirit, we are doing things. 
to be holy, you see, to progress in our holiness in our lives. That's chapter 6. And I say this is a a progression in Romans because these two go hand in hand. It's not like some believers get justification, remember, and some get sanctification. No, you get both. And sanctification flows right out of, now, it flows right out of justification. And it leads all the way to that final aspect of salvation we talked about, glorification. And that's chapter 8, where it ends with you being raised from the dead and made just like Jesus Christ in every way. You're glorified then, okay? Let's read verses 5 through 14. We'll pause, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let's just ask God's blessing on the word preached. Now, Father, we come before you. We need the grace of your spirits working for me to preach and teach as I ought and to say true things and helpful things and edifying things. I pray for that. I pray for the spirits working in all our hearts to receive your word now. Build up your people. Change our lives cause us to walk in your ways. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The gospel, the whole gospel, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and our union to Christ, our being united to him in that work, provides freedom from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and one day the very presence of sin. 
Saying it that way is saying exactly what I said before I read the scripture and prayed. Justification, penalty of sin. Sanctification, power of sin. And glorification, very presence of sin. The gospel now provides all of that. The gospel is complete. The gospel is perfect. God's work through his son and through his spirit needs no addition. It needs no improvement. It provides an absolutely perfect salvation for all who come to faith in Christ. Understand that. Every aspect of sin that has created problems, both temporal and eternal, for human beings, solved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news in which, if you search it out, you can find no bad news in it, you see. That's how good it is. It's truly, thoroughly, completely good and great news for sinners like you and me who come to God through faith in His Son. When we're dealing in chapter 6 and 7, in about half of 8, we're dealing with the idea of sanctification and knowing that through the cross of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ, sin's power over you, in you, has been broken. That you truly, sin, look at verse 14, will have no dominion over you, Christian. It will not rule and reign. Because you're not under the law, but under grace. And God's grace through the gospel has supplied all we need. We're dealing with the broken power of sin through the gospel. The whole gospel now applied to our lives. And it works itself out in the pursuit of holiness. That's chapter 6. Now look at verse 5. And notice the future hope, the future certain hope now of every believer. Now notice this. For says Paul, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we've been united to him, reasons Paul, in a death like his and receive the benefits of the death, certainly we are going to be united to him in a resurrection like his. Now, I want to say this. I think what Paul is primarily pointing to in verse 5 is the future resurrection from the dead that we landed on last week at Easter that Jesus has promised and that is guaranteed because Jesus was raised. We know we too will be raised. He will raise us from the dead, you see. And I think he's saying we will in the future be united to him in a resurrection like his. Now, what kind of resurrection did Jesus experience? Was it just some sort of spiritual resurrection? Was he a ghost or a spirit that appeared to his disciples? No, remember, he goes out of the way. Hey, guys, come here. Touch me now. Okay, you're still not getting this. Does anybody have any fish? Somebody got some fish? I'm going to eat with you now, you see. 
I've been bodily raised from the dead. And then, after 40 days, he ascended into heaven, glorified. And Paul is saying, we are certainly now, I mean, it's certain, we are certainly going to be united in a resurrection like his. And you notice how he says things like that with such confidence. It's such confidence that this is going to happen. This is certain, friends. We need to remind ourselves of that sometimes, don't we? We need to look into Scripture and see these future promises held out to us and say, this is really going to happen. And preach it like that with certainty now. This is why when any man attempts to get up and preach God's Word, He should preach it with some conviction. This is true and this is certain. Do you remember the the whole emergent church movement that came, came and then died? Men like Rob Bell and others and they would get up. Brian McLaren and all their sermons were filled with absolute uncertainty. They'd question everything in the Bible, draw no conclusions in the Bible. Friends, that doesn't resemble to any degree, you see, what we see on the pages of Scripture, that God's people can have certainty about God's promises. This will happen. It's guaranteed. So if somebody ever asks you, Do you think you're going to be raised from the dead and you're going to be with Jesus one day? Just say, no, I don't think that at all. I know that. I'm confident in this. I'm certain about it. Jesus has promised and Jesus will fulfill that promise and he gave us that guarantee when he himself rose from the dead. That's what we celebrated, right? And that's how we ended last week on Easter Sunday morning. We want to become confident in our faith. Do me a favor and flip over to chapter 8 and look at verse 29 now in connection to this. We certainly will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 28, first of all, this is a verse most of us probably know by heart maybe. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He gives clarity about the good and the purpose here in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen to this, to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, that is his Son, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean, the firstborn among many brothers? Well, we're the brethren, but firstborn from what? Well, Colossians 1.18 sheds some light on this. It says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, listen, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. He became the firstborn 
Friends, from the dead, and what Paul is expressing is this, that that is our destiny to follow after our elder brother in that same kind of resurrection. That's the certain hope we have. In Romans 8.28 says, He works all things together for that good purpose. Everything in your life, everything in your life, good and bad, God is working towards that purpose of your full, glorified conformity to Jesus Christ, you see. He's working it all together for that. Now back in chapter 6, here's why I'm taking so much time to emphasize this fact. If we know that we will be united with him in a resurrection like his, that affects or should affect the way in which we live right now. So if that's our future hope in God's working everything in our lives to that day when we will attain ourselves the resurrection from the dead and become like Christ, then that has implications and applications for how we live every day of our lives now. Do I have 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 on there? Yeah, okay, let's put that up on the screen. Beloved, listen. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be, here he's talking about that future, hope. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears in his return, we shall be like him. Same way, Paul's just putting it another way. We shall certainly now be united to him in a resurrection like his. John's saying when he returns, we're going to be like him. We're going to be glorified because we shall see him as he is. Now listen to this. And everyone, everybody say everyone. Everyone who thus hopes in him is doing something now. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure now. So if that is, in other words, if that's the destiny of all God's children and they know it and it is freedom from the very presence of sin and in an immortal, undecaying, perfectly holy existence in righteousness and glory in the presence of God and everyone then who hopes thus right now purifies himself as he is pure. You're living in the reality of that future hope. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, let me put it in the negative. Somebody who says, I'm one day going to be raised and be glorified with Jesus and live with him forever, and yet now they walk in unrighteousness and unholiness and in lawlessness and sin. That's just their life. 
John says, that person doesn't have that hope because everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. See, that's the same as the Romans justification to sanctification connection, right? Those who are justified are being sanctified to one degree or another. That's why John says, whoever knows God cannot, been born of God, cannot keep on sinning, you see. It's a connection. It's a direct connection of God's work in us. That's why Romans 6 and the resurrection and the connection to it and our union with Christ and his death and resurrection is so applicable. We're living, we're working towards, we're moving towards our future hope and being like Christ. Friends, if you live in this world right now, listen to this, and you love sin, you love and do the things of the world, You love and do sin, and sin does not bother you. And you don't really like righteousness, and you don't like holiness. Friends, if you don't like it now, you're not going to like it then. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Sanctification, then, is a mark of a true believer. Paul taught it. John taught it. Peter, as we looked at last week, taught it. This pursuit of holiness in our lives, though imperfect as it is, and I'll get to that in just a minute. This pursuit of holiness in our lives, then, is a mark of a true believer. 1 John 2, 15 to 16, I pray this for my kids all the time. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And those of you who are parents and grandparents, maybe you've spent your time in sin prior to knowing Christ. You lived your life in opposition to God. You experienced the world. And then God in his grace comes along and saves you from that. And it's like you were given eyes to see the world for what it is. And it just lost its desire. It lost its appeal. And what do you want for your kids and your grandkids? You want them to have the eyes to see what the world is the passing nature of the pleasures of this world. You want God's love to so fill their hearts that it literally floods out the love of this world in them. Like his love 
floods into their hearts and minds in a, such a way, the Spirit, I mean, God just flips a switch in them. And they love God now more than the world, you see. That's what we pray. But if anyone loves the world and they want to live in the world, the love of the Father is not in them. It's the love of God actually poured out in our hearts as we learned about in chapter 5. The love of God poured out in our hearts by the Spirit now that actually produces in us no more temporal living but hope, right? We pray for our loved ones and we pray for ourselves. Don't let me love the things of this world. Let me love you, God, above all things. Well, let's look at three things now very quickly here so I get through these verses. There are three aspects to pursuing sanctification. We're going to get practical now. What is it to pursue this sanctification? There are three components to it, okay? There is knowledge, faith, and action. You could summarize the process of sanctification in your life and your responsibilities by these three words. You need knowledge and faith and action, okay? That's how we progress in sanctification. Now, let me show you how that works. Look, first of all, at verses 6 through 9. Sanctification in our life begins with what we know, gospel truths that we know. Okay, look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. We know this. Whenever Paul says something like this, we know, that means it's just common Christian knowledge. So if you didn't know it, now you do. Now you're on board. Now you're on the same page, right, with what Christians need to know. And what do we know in these verses that helps us pursue holiness? Well, we know that when Christ died, we died with him. Or as Paul puts it in verse 6, our old self, that you that was you when you were born into this world until God changed you into a new creation, that you, died with Christ. And when that happened, verse 6, the result was this, the body of sin was brought to nothing. It was rendered useless. And what Paul means by that is this. Catch this in verses 6 and 7 again. That we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. So if you're like me and you have trouble capturing what I would consider abstract concepts like I was united to Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. Well, I didn't experience that. I wasn't there with him. What does that mean? How do I wrap my mind around this concept? Paul gets to the point of what he's saying so you can move on to that. Being united to Christ in his death means that you would no longer, you are no longer enslaved to sin. That's what he means. 
You were, but you are no longer. You now are alive in Christ. You have been set free from sin, which means you no longer have to obey those sinful impulses you still have and I still have. Some of you maybe left the last couple sermons when we looked at Romans 6 said, yeah, I'm going to pursue holiness. That's what I'm doing. Here I go. And all of a sudden you detected you had the desire to do that. But you still had desires to not do that. You still had desires to do what's wrong, you see. What you need to know when you feel like that is that you are not enslaved to those sinful desires. You do not have to obey them. Jesus in his gospel work has secured from you freedom from the dominating, ruling power of sin in your life. In other words, now you are free not to live in sin. That's what you've been set free from. You're now free to pursue holiness. And let me just slip this in. Because justification is so perfect and beautiful, you're free to pursue holiness even when you mess up and you sin still because you're still justified. You just at that point then pick up in that area of life and you pursue holiness in it again, you see? Remember what I said, the gospel's perfect. No loopholes in this. You need to know though, Christian, that you don't have to obey those sinful desires. You know, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about this idea that we were enslaved to sin, though it doesn't use that terminology. It describes what Paul means. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked or lived, following the course of this world because you loved it. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Something just happened to my microphone there. Among whom we all once lived. Can we turn me down? It's actually creepy. Okay, there we go. Among we, no. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know, some people, the big question in Christian circles is this Do we have free will? You ever heard that question? You ever argued with that question over something? Friends, by definition, is a slave free? I think by definition, a slave isn't free. And what it means to be enslaved to sin is that you follow. What do you follow? You follow the course of this world. And you follow the prince of the power of the air. You follow after your own sinful passions and desires. See, what we needed to be saved, we needed more than forgiveness. We needed freedom. We needed our wills released from the slavery to sin so that we would be free now 
to live for God. So in the sense of, am I, do I have a free will prior to being saved? My answer is no. Your will, like the whole rest of you, was a slave to sin. And the good news of the gospel is that now, in Christ, what God has done in his work in you is freed up your will. Now your will's free. And you're supposed to activate that will in Romans 6 now in pursuing righteousness. Right down to what we'll look at next week. Paul says, as you were a slave to sin, now be a slave to righteousness. Enslave your will, in other words, to righteousness and live for God. In order to be saved, we needed more than forgiveness. That is justification, salvation from the penalty of sin. We needed to be set free from sin's enslaving power, and that's what God has done for us in his grace. Now, you are no longer enslaved to sin, and your will is free to obey God, and you have to know that. And it's so important to know that, friends, because it goes against how we feel. You see, all of us have what we call besetting sins, don't we? Let me just use these as an example. The author to the Hebrews, I didn't come up with that. The author of Hebrews says, you're running this race with endurance. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. And when Christians read that verse, in their mind, they know their sins. They know the ones that easily beset them. The ones maybe at times they've tried to overcome and just don't feel like they can do it. They know exactly what that author's talking about. We have besetting sins. And when we're dealing with those in our lives, it often feels like we're enslaved to them. Sometimes the desires for some of those types of besetting sins and other sins you deal with, they feel so strong within you. It's like, I must obey this. There's no way I cannot obey this sin. Have you ever felt like that? Whatever your sins may be. Paul says what you need to know, you need to know this gospel truth. That's the first step. You need to know that you were united to Christ in his death and burial and resurrection, you have been set free now. You do not have to obey those sins. That's what he's getting at. You're free now. You're no longer a slave to those sins. And then, and we'll just touch on this one and we'll pick it up next week. You have to take what you know and you have to believe it. You have to apply it by faith now to you. It isn't enough to know just that you were, you're dead to sin. You have to take that knowledge and you have to apply it to yourself by faith. Here's what I mean. Just look at these verses. This is what we're going to close with. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now look at his conclusion to this. This is the faith right here. 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You can't keep this just in the realm of knowledge in your head, some kind of head knowledge here that you've got about the gospel. You need to take it and say, then that means, because of what Jesus did, that means I'm now dead to sin and alive to God, you see. I'm no longer enslaved to God. That's faith. That's the activation of faith. Before you've done anything else, you've looked at the gospel and got that knowledge about the gospel, and then you've taken that gospel and you've applied it to yourself. You must take these gospel truths and apply them into your lives. Sometimes, and it was the case with me, and I've heard it with others, they would grow up even hearing about you know, the cross and Jesus dying for sins. And yeah, they always believed that Jesus died for sins. But there came a point in time, right, in which all of a sudden they saw, wait a minute now, Jesus died for me, you see. Now I'm forgiven and I have eternal life. And it became personal. That's personal faith. And what I'm saying, it's not just with justification. Some people have these faith epiphanies When it comes to their walk with Christ, all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a minute. I no longer have to walk in this sin anymore. I can pursue holiness and righteousness in my life. By the Spirit given to me, Romans 8, I can put to death the deeds of the body. See, gospel knowledge is absolutely useless when it's not accompanied by true gospel faith. If you don't take these things and by faith apply them into your life, then the gospel knowledge you have profits you nothing, you see. Believe it now. And that leads me to the third one, action, verses 12 and 13. Very simply this. Since you know this and you believe this about true, now listen to this. Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but now present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. You see how that works? You know these things. You believe these things. Now put it into action in your life. That besetting sin, the one that you knew and were thinking about when I was talking about besetting sins, now apply that, apply these gospel truths to that particular sin when you leave here this morning. And when you feel the impulses, you're going to remind yourself of what you know, you're going to apprehend it by faith, and then you're going to take the steps of obedience, you're going to take some action. I'm not going to allow this any longer to rule over me. You you might have to say these things out loud to yourself. You might have to preach a sermon to yourself in those moments until that flesh has been conquered and you're walking in obedience. And friends, as we learn to do that, as we learn to do that and we do that more and more and more, that's sanctification. The more holy we become in the reality and in our daily living as God has already declared us to be holy. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word and how you have directed us in it and you still direct us through. Savior, like a shepherd, you lead us through the pages of scripture. Show us yourself and then you show us who we can and should be because of your work. We praise you, Jesus. We praise you. Our eyes of faith are upon you, our elder brother. We pray for your return and your appearing. We ask that, I ask that everyone in this room would attain to the resurrection of the dead 
and that we would all be gathered, as we sang earlier, with joy around your throne. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.